0: come on a journey with a cinephile. episode number 32 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always your tour guide david garrett jr recording here out of columbus ohio and on this episode is going to be journey through the Odds, episode number seven and on this one my 2020 release is going to be sea fever and i know i said a different title and i address this a little bit more in the actual review but i did not watch the other movie called you'll find out i ended up watching chamber of horror also known as the door with seven locks and like i said i will get into why that's the case but those are the two featured reviews that are one from 2020 as well as the other one from 1940 and then also on this episode i have mini reviews of i monster on the curse spiral aka uzamaki and final destination But what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is before I get into those reviews, I'm going to send you over to a musical break and then get into those mini reviews. Enjoy. So what? I- And for my first mini-review of this week is going to be for I, Monster, from 1971. This is directed by Stephen Weeks. It comes from the novel by Robert Louis Stevenson, and the screenplay by Milton Subtowski. This stars Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and Mike Raven. This is a horror film from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being... In the 19th century London, the psychologist Charles Marlowe researches a new drug capable of releasing inhibitions and uses his patients as guinea pigs, including himself. Now, I did doctor that down a little bit because it was very wordy, the one that was actually listed on there. But this is another film that I picked up some time ago on DVD and finally got around to watching it. And I'm pretty sure that I knew this was a take on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from the story, you know, from Stevenson. But I was under the impression that this was Hammer... But I was wrong to learn that in the credits, this is actually Amicus's take on it, which, as I said, I did not realize that was the case until I started watching this. But this one they decide to take, instead of being, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde being the characters here, we have a Charles Marlowe and Edward Blake, who are both betrayed by Christopher Lee. But. I did read that the reason that this change was made was because they wanted to try to preserve the twist of the story until the it actually happens. The problem, though, is that if somebody's watching this and they see in the beginning credits, it literally says Stevenson, and once you see the Doctor and what he's trying to talk about is gonna give that away. Now, this one doesn't do a whole lot differently, though, as this is another one where they're trying to figure out if the about the human soul, as if that's more of what is causing people to do what they're doing, or is it upbringing what you're taught and social standing to decide then of course though we have Marlowe here who believes that a drug can be concocted to separate you know the evilness of man but this does bring up the works of sigmund freud that i kind of thought was a little bit interesting where him and lanyon start to debate this and in this version of it lanyon is portrayed by richard herndl but it's interesting that they go back and forth where lanyon brings up the fact that if you take away the ability to choose then you're gonna have just people that are obedient humans and they're just doing the right thing because they're forced to but on the converse of that if you remove the super ego i believe it would make these things be baseless creatures that would do whatever they want and whatever they feel and i thought this is an interesting thing to bring up because that is exactly what blake does in this movie you know taking on the form of the Hyde character now I actually don't think this is all that great of a version of it, and I think a lot of that is there's not really that much of a change between Blake from Marlowe, except they just give him some wild teeth and like mess up his hair a little bit. But I do like that in this version, they actually do have Marlowe testing this drug on other people. I believe the two patients that are used are Dean, who is Kenneth J. Warren, and Diane, who is Susan Jameson. Now, Dean, it makes this guy who's kind of a tough guy into a blubbering child. And then on the other side, we have Diane, who is a prim and proper woman, who, when she has the drug in her, she becomes a nymphomaniac and actually exposes herself to Marlowe. I did think that was cool. But my issue, though, with Marlowe and Blake is the fact that if you saw this guy, I don't know if you'd wouldn't be i mean you'd have to tell that it's the same guy just slightly different now i get that this is the you know victorian england is kind of the era that this is going on i still don't believe it's that big of a difference and i was actually kind of disappointed in lee's performance he's very subdued and i'm almost wondering if that was the direction as i did know that this production was plagued with monetary issues near the end but i did think peter cushing did a pretty solid job in this movie and then the other thing that I was kind of hoping for a little bit more of is that this comes in at first with a grindhouse feel and we get that with the color of the blood and everything but the film doesn't go far enough with that and that again could be that they didn't have enough money to do some more of the effects there but it just kind of feels like They were hinting at that they were going to do a little bit more, and they just don't give us enough when it comes to that for me. So I was kind of disappointed in this, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. And I had to come in with a 6 out of 10. I still think it's pretty good, but it could have been better in my eyes. So it's really just slightly over average. And then up next for my second review is, I should also lead off before I get into what the movie is, is that I'm going to be part of the People's Council for the podcast Under the Stairs summer challenge series for the 2000s and so you're gonna hear a lot of movies that I'm gonna be watching as kind of these mini reviews here are going to be films that are from that so I'm starting in the 2000s and the first movie that I watched for that is *Juon: the Curse now this is written and directed by Takashi Shimizu it stars Yurai Yangi Yu and Ryota Koyama this is a horror mystery film from Japan This is currently sitting on a 6.9 on IMDB and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a teacher visits the house of one of his students after the boy goes missing, only to have a horrifying excuse for his absence from school. Now, this one, I actually, the first time that I watched it, I had some trouble locating it as this was straight to video, and I actually heard that it was made for television in Japan. Now, it is the same writer and director who did the Japanese remake that went to you know, had the much larger release, as well as the American remake that many of us saw, me included, first before I ever saw either of the, you know, the original Japanese one or the remake that was, you know, came out a couple years later. Now, this is my second viewing of this, as I said, you know, for the summer challenge series, and. What I do like about this one is i feel that it has an interesting take to start the series it is told in six chapters that are out of order like the movies that we are more used to in this series and it makes a whole lot of sense that you know the writer and director would kind of do this whole thing here as the chapters the first one it's all names of characters is toshio where his teacher who is mr kobayashi goes to his house to check on why he's been missing from school and then the next chapter is Yuki, which follows two girls who are trying to study. And one of them, the other one is Kana, and her family are living in the house where everything happened. And then the following chapter is Mizuho, and she is the girlfriend of Kana's brother, who is Tsuyoshi. And Mitsusho goes to the school where she is supposed to meet her boyfriend, and that's where the haunting messes with her. And then chapter four is Kana, which this one actually shows the mother of that family and her dealing with everything. And then the next chapter is Kayako, which this is the first time that the actress Takako Fuji would fill that role and take it on. And this actually fills in and goes back to the first chapter and fills in everything that happens in the house from there. And then we also learn that there's a connection between Kobayashi and Kayako, or at least the husband thinks that there is. And then the movie then ends with the chapter of uh, Kayoko. And this bridges the gaps between the original curse and what happens there. And then the occupants that we get later in the movie. And I just like how everything is pieced together. As it does, at first, you kind of just trying to learn who everybody is. And then as you see things starting to fit together, it's just really well done in my opinion. But I will say that this is the more tame version. And the ending is pretty abrupt. And I do think that that was part of the fact that... The Curse 2 was also coming out that same year so it just seems like they were leaving it kind of on a cliffhanger so that way they could go into the next movie and it would fill in even more information from there. I do think that the effects are pretty good here and I really like the look they give for Kayako here where her body is all twisted and broken and it explains why she walks the way she does and why everything is so creepy with it there. But the only time that, and there is some CGI, but the only time I had issues with it is there is a character that is missing their jaw. And you could tell that it's done with CGI. And I just don't think they really had a whole lot of money. And that's the real big thing I would say about this movie in general. Is it just feels like they don't have the budget to necessarily do some of the things that they wanted to. So they kind of just had to cut corners where they could and everything like that. Not saying that it's a bad thing, but just some of the things that really kind of stood out to me. Now, this isn't my favorite, but I will say that my rating on this version has come up from the first time that I saw it. I really just think that the lower budget kind of turned me off to it at first. But I will say, having watched it again the second time, I really did come up. And my rating here now would end up being a 7.5 out of 10 for Juwan the Curse. Okay, and that'll take me next to Spiral, which its original title is Uzumaki. This comes from 2000. This was directed by Higuchininsky. And it was from the manga by Junji Ito. And then the supervising screenwriter was Kengo Kaji. And then also helping out with the screenplay is Takao Niti and Chiki Yaso. And then this stars Iriko Hatsune, Fai Fan, and Hinako Saki. This is a drama fantasy horror film from Japan. This is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being the inhabitants of a small Japanese town become increasingly obsessed with and tormented by spirals. Now just a little bit of my background with this. i I think I first legitimately heard about this from the Shockwaves podcast where Rebecca McKendry brought it up as she normally brings up some weird and wild films so I wrote this one down and I know it came up again when Duncan over on the podcast Under the Stairs did an episode or two about this movie. Now, I know one of them, I believe, was, if it was only one episode, it was for sure Andy Loves Art House. Now, I'm watching this, though, as I'm working my way through, again, the Summer Challenge series over on T-Puts for the 2000s, so this gave me an excuse to finally watch this. And I should point out here that this is broken up into four chapters, with the first one being a premonition where we're following a girl of Kairi Goshima, who is Hatsune. And it's just her kind of going through this small town that she lives in. And she is very close to a boy who is Shuichi, who is Fan. And she just finds a weird scene where his father is recording a snail. And he's kind of focusing in with the spiral shell that it has. And then from there, we kind of just get to learn about other people that live in this small town with them. And then we go through the other three chapters, which are erosion, visitation, and transmigration. With the last chapter being extremely short, but it is showing us the effects of this obsession about spirals. And this is kind of an interesting time to watch this as this does spread like a virus. And I had watched this during, you know, this whole quarantine for COVID-19. So it makes it even more intriguing that I'm living in a pandemic and then seeing a virus spread as this develops in a couple different ways as it's first with obsession. And then this does go into some where it drives people crazy, but we also get some interesting body horror as the movie goes on and going along with this interesting imagery as well is they incorporate spirals into different things that i kind of thought was cool where you'll just see things like lollipops or at one point a girl's hair becomes a spiral but i mean they're talking about things like the inner ear has a spiral or you're just looking at things like wheels or just things like that that there's some of them that you realize and then some that you don't as they kind of point things out now What I do also like is that they give us a bit of the background information from this, but not a whole lot, as there is a reporter who later in the movie decides to try to start looking into everything as Suichi's father had came to him about the lore of their town. So that's where they give a little bit more of the background and trying to learn about things here, which I did think was cool, but they don't give us too much. But I do feel this movie is lacking just slightly because the manga, I'm assuming, gives you so much more background and gives you more information, where this one just doesn't have the time I like that they kept it about 90 minutes because I think if they would have went any further than that, it might have bogged it down a little bit. So it's kind of one of those things where I want to know more, but I also don't want to be bored with learning too much. And I think what the reporter discovers gives you enough where it does semi-explain things without going, you know, too heavy-handed with it. And I will say that some of the uh, effects that we get in the movie aren't great. There's some CGI that I think is a bit wonky being, you know, early 2000s where, budget necessarily wasn't there and the technology wasn't there either to kind of make it look better than what we got but some of the practical effects that we get here was really creepy and I can see why this was selected for you know kind of an art house type film because what they're trying to do in this definitely does give that arty vibe off for me but I did think on the whole this movie is quite creepy with some of the things they're showing us and how things play out with characters and then I thought the acting for the most part was good we get some characters, though, I don't think are necessarily fleshed out enough for us getting a baseline of what their normal would be before we get to see their strangeness. They do good with the two main characters, but then we get like, characters like one by the name of Yamaguchi, who's just really creepy from the beginning, and then we never really get to see Sauchi's father as a normal person, but, I mean, we do get to see stuff like Kairi before anything. Uh, Sauchi is normal, and that's given us a baseline. We do get to meet another character of kayoko sakuni who we get to see that she's kind of a bitch to start off with and then when things kind of go crazy she changes yuki who is uchi's mother we get to see kind of a baseline for her before things go crazy with her and a lot of that is just from grief so i thought i thought the acting was pretty good for the most part there's just some slight issues with some of the characters for me nothing though to ruin anything and then I will say the soundtrack is quite haunting for this movie. And that really made me feel uncomfortable. There's times where it has this like weird upbeat sound to it. And then other times where it's just going for a more creepy vibe as well. But I did think this was an interesting first watch. Definitely glad that I finally got around to seeing it. I can see how this is a polarizing movie where some people like it and some others don't. But I definitely came in here with an 8 out of 10 for Spiral. And then my last movie for this week is going to be Final Destination from 2000. This is a movie directed by James Wong. It is from a screenplay that was co-written by Glenn Morgan, James Wong, and Jeffrey Reddick. And this is from a story from Reddick as well. This stars Devin Sawa, Ali Larder, and Kerr Smith. This is a horror, mystery, or a horror thriller film from the United States. And this is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being after a teenager has a terrifying vision of him and his friends dying in a plane crash he prevents the accident only to have death hunt them down one by one. Now this was a movie that I remember seeing when it first hit the movie channels growing up. I'm not sure if I got this off of pay-per-view or not but it would have been right around in that era but regardless it didn't take me long to see this one and it was also an interesting time as I remember seeing Sawa larder and sean williams scott and other things around this time but i was never really expecting them to see him in a movie like this and it's been probably since college since i last saw this movie and it is thanks to duncan again over on the podcast under the stairs for that summer challenge series for the 2000s And just a little bit more background information from the synopsis is that we're following Alex Browning, who is Sawa, as he's supposed to be going on a field trip to France with some of his classmates. And he keeps seeing little things until he has a dream as he dozes off when he first gets on the plane and freaks out thinking that it's going to explode. Him and some other students end up getting off of the airplane. And as they're sitting in the kind of exit and lobby of everything like that, the plane does actually explode. And then he becomes kind of a prime suspect as they're wondering, you know, how everything went down and how he knew that it was going to happen. But this is really just a fun film for me as it's definitely a popcorn movie where for me, I can just come in, watch this movie, turn off my brain and not really have to worry about it. Because it's one of those things you just kind of watch everything play out. And you don't have to analyze anything too deep. That's not to say that it doesn't have an interesting concept, though, as I do like this idea that, you know, death has a plan for everything. And then for whatever reason that Alex can have premonitions and see different images that helps him to kind of cheat death And being that this one doesn't really explain why for a first movie doesn't actually bother me as I'm willing to kind of just overlook that and just let everything play out for me and I don't feel like it necessarily needs to go in depth for that it is something that your sequels need to do a little bit more of that since they are you know carrying on the idea and usually for sequels you flesh things out a little bit more and I think there are some fun deaths in this, is I personally think that Todd's death in this movie is one of my favorites in the series, and it's really the first death that happens after that initial you know disaster sequence to get everything going in the movie. But some of the other ones, they really kind of play out like you'd see in the game Mousetrap, which is interesting is that this isn't the first movie to kind of do these elaborate death sequences that have all these moving parts with it, but it really became something that was brought to the forefront by this movie, so now you see when things like that in movies after this fact that you call them, you know, Final destination isque, which is kind of a cool thing that this movie did here. And I do have to say that there's some really creative nods to silent horror film icons, as well as people right after that era that I kind of think is cool. Like, for some examples here is that Alex Browning is named after Todd Browning, the director of things like Freaks. You also have Val Luton, who is somebody very important very early on in the film. Robert Venney is a guy that I've covered a couple of his films on here. Max Shrek was the actor in the original Nosferatu. So those are some people that I've covered some films they've been in. There's also Wagner, who I've covered, The Gollum, which I believe he was a director there. There's Hitchcock is a last name in this movie. And then there's also like Terry Cheney, and Marno, who are both people that I've kind of gone over. So I think that they did some really creative aspects there in incorporating those names, where if you're not a diehard horror fan, you might not even realize what they're doing, and it's pretty creative to do so. Then you also get things like, there's a John Denver song that plays throughout, and he, of course, died in a airplane crash, so I thought that was a kind of cool thing there to use. And there's also the idea that we have Todd is spelled with just one D, and that is interesting, though, because... Todd in German with that spelling actually means death. So you have stuff like that, that, and then the owls are also in this movie at one point as well, as I think that's kind of a cool thing to play with as they're supposed to be like harbingers of death. But I will say the acting is a bit inconsistent as I think at times that Sawa does a little bit of overacting. I think Larder has some issues with how she's written at times. And I think rewrites were kind of the issue that we got from there. And, but I will say that like, I like to see the cameo by Tony Todd here. I think Sean William Scott's role is fine. I think Keira Smith does a little bit of overacting as well. Now, some of the CGI that we get in this movie doesn't hold up, but I would say for the most part, the effects are pretty positive in this movie. So there's that. I think that's really all I kind of wanted to go over for this little review here. But what I'm going to go ahead and do is I say my rating for Final Destination would be a 7.5. But what I'm going to go ahead and do now is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review.
1: You're the scientist, I hear. I am a Jared the Skipper. This is Freya, the real boss. <sighs> what is your work while you're on board? I identify and extrapolate patterns from variations in deep sea behavior. Only you need to photograph your catch. Ha, 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 yes! Something's wrong. What is that? How long to lead you through the boat? Into the water. We're all vulnerable to get infected. I
2: can't see. I want you to test all of us. Those things will spread really fast. We need to quarantine ourselves. We're making port tonight. But you don't understand. you are not human. thinking?
0: My first featured review here on this episode is going to be Sea Fever. This is from 2019, but it's getting its 2020 release. Now, this is written and directed by Nisa Hardeman. It stars Hermione Corfield, Dag Melberg, and Jack Hickey. This is a horror sci-fi film from a co-production in Ireland, the United States, the United Kingdom, Sweden, and Belgium. This is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being the crew of a West Ireland trawler marooned at sea struggles for their lives against a growing parasite in their water supply. Now, this is a movie that I got turned on to from podcasts when I was looking for 2020 horror films to watch, not only for here, but also to keep up with my goal for the year. Now, I'm a sucker for movies that take place out on open water because I'm both fascinated and terrified about that whole situation and what's at the bottom of it to be honest so this one really intrigued me to check out from what I had heard and decided with Jamie that we would give this a viewing. Now we start this off with our main character of Saibahan who is Corfield as she is studying something in an institute that she's going to school for. Now I do find it interesting here is that her professor who is portrayed by Dag Melberg tells her that she needs to make the fishing vessel that she's doing her field work on or she he's gonna have to fail her as she's trying to get her doctorate now she does say something as he first comes in about I believe something about a parasite or a virus that shouldn't be where it's at in the stuff that she's looking at but he kind of just ignores that and tells her what to do now we get the idea that she's a bit of a loner and she doesn't want to do this you know type of thing for credit even though it is required but she does state that she likes to analyze data and study patterns but she is forced to go as she is walking down the pier she is met by johnny who is hickey and he leads her to the vessel there they're joined by sierra is what it's spelled like but i do believe they call her Kara or kiara or something along those lines and she's portrayed by olwyn fiori and she tries to make shahaban feel welcome now the boat is skippered by gerard who is doug ray scott and freya who is connie nielsen and then also on the crew we have amidi who is Ardalan esamali and sudi who is Eli balkazi now saibahan is impressed with the filtration system they have for water on the boat, and Ahmed's the one that created it, but she does put her foot in her mouth with a backhanded compliment. She does mean well and thinks that he's a talented engineer, but that he's wasting his time being this crew member on this ship. Now, he seems to enjoy the work and we do learn later on that he is married and has a child on the way. But regardless, it is still a compliment. She just means it just doesn't come out the way she wants it. Now, they head out to sea and Gerard gets a report that there is a ton of fish in the place that they usually set up their necks. So him and Free are pretty excited that they'll get a good haul. The problem is that they soon learn the Coast Guard is preventing them from going into that area, as it is currently an exclusion zone. Now, unknown to the crew at first is that Gerard redirects them to go into it anyways, and they end up getting stuck freya learns of what he did but she's willing to keep his secret because if they don't bring enough of a haul in they're gonna lose their vessel now sabahan is supposed to be analyzing what they bring in and then to do a dive as well now since something has stopped them from leaving or going any further she is asked to see what is doing it before that though the wood of the hull down underneath the ship is being changed by something like they actually poke it with a pencil and it kind of just collapses under that And then there's this weird like goo that keeps seeping in as well now what they discover is that in the water is a large sea creature with tentacles that are holding them in place this is where the wood is changing is where they're attached and they almost look like a lamprey with how the mouth is at the other end of it and this leads them to believe that it's probably just a giant squid which they think if they can get it to take it back they should have a nice haul just by bringing that in alone now they try to get it free but it will destroy their machinery if they continue to do so And they also discover another vessel is nearby and they make a grizzly discovery on board there i don't want to spoil that as it's pretty creepy with what we see now what might even be scarier though is what gets into their water Now that's where I kind of want to leave my recap as what I gave is just kind of an extended version of the synopsis that I got from IMDB. I will leave some aspects out as I'm going to delve into some of the things that I like without going into spoilers as I don't want to just go ahead and spoil this movie as I would like people to see this one as I thought it was pretty solid. Not to play my hand a little bit too early, but I think I can go through a lot of this stuff without going too deeply and ruining anything. The first thing I really like here is what they did with the story is the fact that we're mixing science with fisherman lore. I find mythology in general to be fascinating, especially with how they can use different things to explain why they happen. Some examples we get here is Saibahan is a bit of an outcast in this vessel because she removes her stocking hat and to reveal she's a redhead after they've already gone out to sea. I guess this is a bad omen for fishermen, and we also learn about a goddess that jumped into the water because that was her lover, and that explains how this photoplankton is lighting it up. Now, the basis really here in reality is the fact that they, when they think they're burning their food for energy, it gives off light, but it just interests me that these people have come up with different things to explain as to why, instead of, you know, just using the scientific explanation, and this is what they had to do back in the day when they didn't have science, so I think it's kind of a cool thing to kind of reveal here. Now, going from this idea with science, I like having Saibahan on board as she is trying to be logical with everything that they do. At first, they don't think there's anything wrong. With what they find on the other vessel, Gerard is chalking it up something called sea fever, which I just take it as cabin fever, that when you're just stuck on a ship in the water that you know, you're know you getting stir crazy and there's no way to escape anything and that you just go mad and that it can spread through is something we learned in this movie. Saibahan keeps noticing evidence, like she ends up seeing something in Johnny's eye as things progress, but nobody else seems to, and they just chalk it up that she might have just been seeing something. But her whole thing is that she looks for patterns, so I like progressing the story this way with her kind of analyzing data to help get us, you know, farther along with everything. Now, if you know anything about me, and I've kind of already said to this earlier in this recording here is I'm terrified of open water. This is partially because I don't like what is underneath it and you know could be at the bottom, but I also don't want to be left there because there's no way that I can just get off of it and get back to land, so that terrifies me. Now, to give you a bit of background, I've been on Lake Erie as I live in Ohio a few times on boats. I've legit had some anxiety attacks when I can't see land in any direction. So when this vessel gets stuck, my anxiety went through the roof, and this happens a couple times. And there's also a sea creature in this movie that legitimately could exist. We don't necessarily know, and there could be things, like I said, living at the bottom of the ocean like this. As we know, there are things that have natural light that they give off, like anglerfish. So there possibly could be this giant sea creature that just glows like we get here. Now, the last aspect of the story I wanted to delve into is that the makers of this movie probably couldn't have hoped for a better climate for this world to be to be released into. I'm still currently working from home during this whole COVID-19 threat. At the time of writing this, things are starting to open back up and we're returning to some sense of normalcy. But it is crazy that Sibahan is recommending that they quarantine to ensure that they're not infected when they get off of the ship. So that's the way that they know that they can contain it. Much like people in my country of the United States, partially those that think it's a hoax and others that don't think it's nearly as bad, Freya, Gerard, and pretty much the rest of the crew disagree with her. They think that just going to the hospital if they feel sick is fine. This parasite doesn't transfer as easy as the coronavirus, but clearly we see that this is a mindset is legitimate with what we've been going through. Even more so here is that they don't necessarily see the effects at first, and when they do they turn a blind eye to it, and that's a terrifying thing as how viruses can legitimately spread. Now, I've heard some people say this movie's a bit slow. I can see that thought process, but I don't think that it's legitimate for me. I never found this to be boring. And i thought that it moved through the plot points is a pretty good clip to be honest we get one problem that pops up they try to figure out a way to fix it or get around it and then we get to the next one and then it has a runtime of just around 90 minutes that i thought really helped as well i don't feel like we ever really linger on anything too long which does help you know kind of everything in my opinion but I do see people say that this is a lot of just talking even though I disagree with them and I end up thinking the ending is a bit sad but I dug that as I usually like the more downbeat ending if I'm going to be honest now as for the acting here I thought it was good we have a blend of actors in this boat that I've seen in things as well as some younger people that I haven't but they all play each other off pretty well. Corfield I saw in a film last year called Rust Creek, which I thought she was good in. I know some people didn't really care for it, but I didn't mind it. I thought she had a good performance. And I think in this movie here, I think her performance is even better. She gives off that brooding feeling of someone who doesn't really connect well with people and is just a bit socially awkward. She is smart, though, and important to everything. And then I thought Hickey, Izamali, Bazauki, and Fiori are all solid as the crew on this vessel. And I also think it's interesting to have veteran actors like Scott and Nielsen who are in charge as we have a nice split of older generation and diverse younger generation. And like I said, they all work well off of each other, especially the crew of the boat, because they do really come off like a family. And then it's actually got me, you know, feeling uplifted when Corfield got accepted into their group and everything like that. But we see that that's kind of short lived as well. The last thing to cover would be the effects. And to be honest, I think we get quite a bit of CGI here but I thought it was pretty good. Assuming that everything in the sea creature underwater was CGI, I liked how it looks though with the glowing being in the water as it made it feel more real to me. And with this being you know, kind of in high def, it really worked and I didn't really notice much being problematic there. And I also think what happens with Johnny was CGI, but it was so quick that I couldn't pick it apart And I do know there are some practical effects with some of the worms that we got in this movie. I thought that looked good. Uh, The blood in the movie, I thought also looked good. The isolation really works for me as well. And there's just some really good framing to go with the cinematography. So now with that said, I thought this was a movie was pretty solid in my opinion. This really does feel like alien or the thing on a boat while doing its own kind of take on those. The duality of fishing lore mixed with science was something that intrigued me thought the acting really carried this as tension mounts with being isolated here like they are and you know, being on a boat in the middle of the ocean and not really being able to get off and kind of get away from things. But then you also have the thing of is a parasite spreading amongst them in this isolated quarters. The CGI was pretty solid and the practical effects used with it were good. The soundtrack didn't really stand out to me but it also doesn't hurt anything as well i really like what they're doing here and i think this could possibly be a contender for my year end as well if i'm going to be perfectly honest and i came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie now as i said i'm not going to do a spoiler section as i don't feel like i really needed one and i was able to kind of go over over everything like i did there without spoiling the movie in general so what i'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer for my second featured review my second featured review on this episode is going to be my 1940s film. Now I originally told you it was going to be a different one, but I could not find the copy that I thought I had of it, and I actually am getting it from Netflix, so I will have that for next week. So instead I decided to watch Chamber of Horrors from 1940, or its original title was actually The Door with Seven Locks. This was directed by Norman Lee. This comes from a novel by Edgar Wallace, and then the treatment was from John Argyle, and then the screenplay was co-written by Gilbert Gunn and Norman Lee. This is starring Leslie Banks, Lily Palmer, and Romilly Lunge. This is a drama horror mystery film from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 5.6 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being Murder is found to be connected to a and the synopsis is murders found to be connected to an error and a mysterious locked tomb. Now, this is another one that I'd never actually heard of until I was working through a list of 1940s films. And then, you know, for this segment here of Journey Through the Ots. It took me a bit to find a way to watch this, but I ended up having to do it through YouTube. And I was thrown off as that there are two different titles for this movie. And I would like to actually find a physical copy because anytime I watch a movie there, I do like to give my support because it's not necessarily the best way to be watching things now we start this off on the deathbed of lord charles francis selford who is aubrey malu he has some of his family around him as he knows his time is short he reveals that he's going to lock away the family jewels with him and it will be locked up with seven keys that will need to be con- kept by the person who is handling his estate by the name of edward havelock who is david horn until the wedding night of his son. Now there, tending to him on his bedside is Dr. Manetta, who is Leslie Banks. And then there's also Louis Silva, who is J.H. Roberts. And amongst the others that are in the attendance as well. Now he also... Lord Charles relays some information to his son before he passes away that night. Then the movie shifts to what was present time as Lewis wrote a letter for a young woman and he has it delivered to her by some boys, but he actually throws it out of the window of the room that he's staying at in a kind of nursing home type building. Now the woman that this gets delivered to is June Lansdow, who is Lily Palmer. She is speaking with her roommate and friend Glenda Baker, who is Gina Malo, as she is actually in the bathtub. Now From the conversation, we get that Glenda is a little bit loose with some of the things that she says. But then we see that June, despite the advice given to her, goes to see Lewis in the nursing home. He also had sent a key to her telling her to keep that safe, and she ends up leaving that at her apartment. Now, before she arrives, we see a couple men talking in the hallway. June is taken to Lewis's room where he gives her an address to the Selford estate and that she needs to go there. Now, the movie shows us a painting where the eyes move and then somebody is spying on them. And then a secret door opens where someone shoots Louis. June then goes for help and a nun tells her that that is not possible. The place is to be closed down and there are no patients in the building. Now, June is flabbergasted and takes her into the room to find that Louis is gone. We get some back and forth between this nun and June before... The nun pretty much says that she does believe that there was somebody in this room, but she doesn't trust June, so the woman flees and goes to the police. Then at Scotland Yard, we get to see an interaction between Dick Martin, who is Romilly Luge, as he resigns from the force and is talking to his friend, who is Detective Inspector Cornelius Andy Sneed, who is Richard Bird. The two of them go back and forth as they're ribbing each other until June arrives. She tells her story, and Dick offers his help despite no longer being a cop now andy calls him out on this so dick's response to this is that he's going to help as a friend when it's really more that he finds june to be completely attractive and ends up going home with her where they discover a burglar dick and this person get into a tussle until one of the men from the nursing home shows up and intervenes burglar does get away but doesn't find what he's actually looking for now this all culminates at the Selford estate dick goes with june and glenda As they first meet with Havelock and discover that all the keys to the sulfur tomb are missing. This causes the four to go to the estate itself where Andy joins as well after some time. Now we do know that only six keys are in the possession of whomever took them as June does have the one. And then we do get to see the man who helped the burglar escape is the handyman here. And his name is Tom Caller and he is Philip Ray. And there's also the butler who is Craig and his trade by Robert Montgomery and then also Dr. Mineta is still living there who of course is Banks. This becomes the goal of Dick June, Glenda, and Andy to get to the truth of what has really happened to Lord Charles as well as the keys to his tomb. There does seem to be a conspiracy afoot and a group of corrupt individuals that are involved and the question really becomes who can be trusted and who cannot be. Now, that's where I want to leave my recap for this movie as to avoid spoilers. I will say, though, this film is pretty entertaining. It is a bit problematic, though, to be honest. The idea of keeping the family jewels in the crypt with Lord Charles is a bit odd, but I mean, it was 1940s, so I mean, I can let that slide. And now that I think about it, it actually happened much earlier than that, as the boy that we saw there is now a full-grown man. So I mean, it's been about a decade or so, but regardless, it is still kind of a weird thing to do for me at least even in the, you know, 20s and 30s. What doesn't make a lot of sense to me is the idea of the seven keys. They're all given to Havlock's office until he realizes they're missing. I know this is based off of a novel which I'm intrigued to read at least or at least to figure out the information on to why this was done. It would make more sense to have something that could be divided between seven people and the way of preventing someone from stealing it is that you need all keys or you would need everyone to agree to get it in my opinion or that everybody would need to will their key to somebody else or you could will it to the person who could eventually get all of them like I said it just is kind of a weird process to me and that's actually one of my issues with the movie as well now this is a mystery and I do feel that it's place its hand a little bit too early we know most of the people that are involved with it from the first time that we meet them and the core group of our heroes don't necessarily know so it's a bit suspenseful to them not knowing but i just feel like they probably should have done a little bit better in revealing from what is happening there but it wasn't that big of a deal if i'm gonna be honest because i was still intrigued by what we got to see in this movie and so kind of to go off of that i didn't hate this i really enjoyed what they were doing with some of the things i thought it was pretty fun of a movie with an interesting premise despite my issues there's actually some low-key comedy that had me cracking up at different times and it is aided by the fact that i also found palmer to be quite attractive i know it's weird to say for you know her age and everything like that and speaking that this movie is you know 80 years old this year but regardless that's kind of how i felt about it What I did find kind of weird, though, is Luge is he's pretty good as well and plays off of Palmer well. But he's a bit odd is that he quits the police force and then immediately ends up helping this girl. This is obviously to play up the romance angle, which I don't necessarily need. But going from there, Banks is an interesting character for his backstory. He's supposed to be an ancestor of the Grand Inquisitor from Spain. And he also has a kind of museum of torture devices that you will... No will come into play later which is kind of cool to see and there's a weird take on the Iron Maiden that I'm the Iron Maiden that I'm not really sure if that was real or not the Dr. Manetta character just isn't great but he is fine along with the rest of the cast I just think they could have done a little bit more with him as well now aside from that there's not really a whole lot to talk about with this movie it really is based around more of a mystery that is lacking a bit for me it doesn't hold my attention as much as it should but there are still some interesting aspects to the movie for sure I really like Palmer's performance and the look of June, with Luge's being a good counterpart along with the rest of the cast rounding this out for what was needed. There's not a lot in the way of effects, but it isn't that type of movie. The soundtrack didn't necessarily stand out. It also doesn't hurt the product either. I think there are some good aspects, but for me it's just lacking a bit to really hold that interest all the way through uh not a bad movie but also far from great i would say this is just over average for me so i came in with a six out of ten here now i do have a little bit of trivia that i wanted to share which is the british actor robert montgomery is listed on the opening credits of the american version as r montgomery so not to confuse the audience with a better known and very popular u.s actor second billing lily palmer is given starring billing as Lily followed by Banks, Malo, and Montgomery. No other cast members are mentioned, and not even, you know, one of the other main stars here is that Romilly Luge, who is billed third in the original UK version, but apparently ignored by the U.S. distributors who are unfamiliar with his name, which is kind of all weird, and that's just kind of the difference between the American and the foreign version here. Now, the USA version, Chamber of Horrors, runs approximately 10 minutes longer than the original UK cut, which is The Door with Seven Locks. Now, the UK, the Kino Lorber DVD restoration is the U.S. version, so that's, you know, the longer one. This is Gina Malo's final film, and the credits of the U.S. version say that it's produced by Edgar Wallace, but he died in 1932 before this movie was being made. It's actually the prolific John Argyle who wrote The Treatment, who is the actual producer. Now, as I've kind of said already here, there's not really a whole lot more that I can delve into this movie kind of went over everything that i wanted to it is lacking just slightly as you could tell but what i'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to one last musical break before i close out the show
1: he was born in the summer of his 27th year coming home left yesterday behind him You might say he was born again You might say he found the key for every door When he first came to the mountains His life was far away On the road hanging by a song But the strings already Don't last for long At the Colorado Rocky Mountain High I've seen it rain and fire in the sky The shadow from the starlight Is softer than a lullaby Rocky Mountain They say that he got crazy once And he tried to touch the sun And he lost a friend but kept a memory Now he walks in quiet solitude The forests and the streams Seeking grace In every step he takes His side has turned inside himself To try and understand serenity of a clear blue mountain lane In the Colorado Rocky Mountain High I've seen it rain and fire in the sky Talk to God and listen to the casual reply Rocky Mountain simple thing cannot comprehend while they try to tear the mountains down to bring in a couple more more people more scars upon the Rocky Mountain High
0: Thank you for listening to episode number 32 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. And just to close everything out here, the first thing I wanted to do was give a shout out. I know I did it on the countdown for my... Favorites of the Big Slasher franchises, but I know over on Sledgehammer Horror, my friend Kenny Sledge has been giving me a lot of love over on his YouTube channel. So I just wanted to go ahead and tell you that if you get a chance to go ahead and check him out over there, and I will have in my show notes a way where you can go right to his page there. But he's been doing some really great stuff. He's been interviewing some really great people on there, and I'm really proud of what he's doing. So I just wanted to give him a quick plug here. But then for my social medias, if you want to get in touch with me, you can send me an email. Email at Journey at Gmail.com. If you want to read any of my written reviews, that's at Reviews of the Dead and that's horror I will have the link in the show notes as always for that. If you want to become friends with me on Facebook, that is David Michigan Garrett Jr. as an easy way to search for me. But again, the link will be in the notes. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish and I'll have that in the notes as well. And then Letterbox, I'm David OSU with the link below and if you want to follow me on instagram it's davidosu 87 on flickchat you can download that app on ios or on android and my join code on there is journey with a cinephile and then whatever you're listening to this on if you could go ahead and give me a follow subscribe whatever they have it on there just so that way anytime I drop a new episode you never have to worry about missing it and if you don't mind if you could go ahead and rate or review whatever they do if they do both I would greatly appreciate that just so I can always make this show the best possible product that I can for it and regardless it is greatly appreciated even if you just listen to me because that is you know the greatest support that I can ask for now for the next episode is going to probably end up being another journey through the aughts I will actually be watching you'll find out and i believe that i'm going to have kind of an independent low budget effort that is going to be the 2020 release As a guy who i've watched a lot of his youtube stuff reached out to me so i think i'm going to check that out so stay tuned for that next episode to see you know both of those reviews there and then it'll probably be a bunch of for the mini reviews will be more for the t put summer challenge series as i try to work through all those as i figure out what years i've been assigned as well as to make sure that i watch all the films so i can go ahead and rate my final year end list for the two that go through each year as well and i just want to once again thank you for listening And whatever you do today, I hope you have a great time doing it and be safe out there as times are starting to look slightly better, but there's still a lot of stuff going on. So be safe. And this is David Garrett Jr. signing off.